Take your Bibles this morning, if you will, and turn to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, as we'll focus on verses 15 through 17. We'll look at that in context, as we always do, in the whole story. But I want to talk to you today about the victory that we have. What a great subject. What a great theme to think about victory. You know, yesterday it occurred to me that on so many Saturdays, we are hoping for victory, right? I mean, especially in our lives. I guess we're hoping for victory every day, but it seems like, especially on Saturday, as we see sporting events and different types of things that occur, that we're always seeming to root for victory. Like yesterday. I mean, yesterday I was rooting for a Mississippi team to win in the College World Series. I was. Not my team, but I'm not like most of them that hate Ole Miss and all that kind of stuff. I'm not like that. I'm not a hater. I'm a lover. And I was rooting to Mississippi State to see them win. My dad always said, hey, son, you're from Mississippi. If anything ever happens good, and it doesn't most of the time, if it does, you ought to root for it. You know what I'm talking about? So I was rooting for that. We're rooting for a victory. Last night, I watched the Miss Louisiana pageant. And there were like three or four of our girls from this church in that pageant. That was pretty cool. I was looking around and seeing that. And and I was kind of rooting for victory. I realized on Saturdays that we root for victories often. Get to the fall. Football, which seems to be king. We're rooting for victories. Hey, on Saturday, we're often rooting for victories. But when we come together on Sunday, we should always be celebrating victory. Because you and I aren't just hoping for a victory. You and I know the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are able to celebrate. We're able to have joy in what he has done. I want to talk to you about that victory this morning as we look at it in Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, beginning verse 15. Just look at this first verse here. It says, So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Now those of you who followed the story, you recognize that Mordecai had been targeted for death. Mordecai, who had tried to uphold that which was right and virtuous, that which was pleasing to God, that Mordecai had faced enemies. He had faced this one particular enemy named Haman. And Haman wanted to destroy not only Mordecai, but all of God's people. That's what we followed in the story. He was, Haman was enraged that Mordecai would not submit to his authority. That is, honor him in a sense of bowing before him and treating him as a god. Haman was so incensed by that. So you come to this point and you're thinking to yourself, Mordecai, the one who had been targeted, is now the one who is wearing the royal clothes. Something has happened. Well, victory has been brought. And in the context of this idea of victory, let me share with you these truths. This first truth that you and I need to recognize as God's people, that since we are God's people, We need to know that we will face enemies, that we will face. I I will tell you that since we are God's people, we need to understand that we will face God's enemies. Now, that probably disappoints or disheartens some of you. 
Because some of you are like me. We are people pleasers. I recognize that long ago in my life that one of the weaknesses that I have is that I am a people pleaser. And many of you in this place, you're a people pleasers too. And what do you hope to avoid at all costs? Making someone mad. Confrontation. You're, you're hoping that you will not have anybody out there that will have all in their heart against you. Now, I know not all of us are people pleasers. There are some of you in here that, hey, you're proud you make people mad every now and then. Probably could call some names. But for those of us who are people pleasers, it, it will dishearten us. It, it will hurt us to even think that there are enemies that are out there. But I want you to hear that if you are a God's child, there is an enemy. There is someone that is going to stand against you. Now, certainly, Haman was the enemy of Mordecai. But we know that the enemy is not just flesh and blood. And we know that the enemy was not just Haman himself. How do I know that? Look at Paul's words. The book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul said, understand that ultimately we are not striving against flesh and blood. We are not warring against flesh and blood. We are warring against those spiritual powers that have, that have set themselves against God and his kingdom. Now, those spiritual beings, those demonic forces, certainly can enter into people's hearts and lives, and they can use those flesh and blood people as instruments to attack God's people. We know that. But I would say to you that Haman himself, as he had hatched this plot, as he had hatched this this plan to destroy God's people that I believe he was motivated by Satan himself. You remember what John says about Cain, the first murderer? It says that Cain, the first murderer, was inspired. He, he was just acting out in the same characteristics of his father, Satan. That Satan was the first murderer. That he is the one who was inspiring all of those acts. So here Haman, I believe is being inspired by the hatred of Satan himself. That Satan is working in Haman to bring an end, not just to Mordecai, but to the people of God. So know this, there's still an enemy. Now don't go around trying to pick those enemies out. Don't go around trying to mark those flesh and blood people because as I said, it's not just flesh and blood. There are spiritual powers that are at war. There's spiritual battles that are being fought each and every day. And understand what Satan wants to do to God's people. He wants to destroy them. He wants to destroy them. That simply spoken, he wants to destroy them. Remember what Jesus said, John chapter 10, verse 10, there at the beginning, says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what Jesus said about Satan. So all he wants to do to you is to steal from you, to kill you, and to destroy you. That's what Satan wants to do. Is, is that not what you see in the life of Haman? This Hitler-like individual of the Old Testament 
He wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy the people of God. That is inspired by Satan. And Satan still wants to do that. He still wants to. When he tempts you to sin, when he encourages you to rebel against the God of heaven, what he ultimately wants to see you do is fall and be destroyed. That's what he wants. See, some of us, we give in to his deception. We think, you know what? This sounds fun. Sin does sound fun. It, it can be very tempting. Otherwise, we would, we would never take part in it, right? It does sound like something that could be fun. It could be, bring pleasure to us. But in the end, what happens? That sin will be destructive in our lives. So what Satan wants to do is to destroy the people of God. Now, personally, and I don't try to get outside of Scripture, but I, I, I think it's based upon Scripture, I, but I believe this. Satan cannot affect our eternity. Did you hear me this morning? Satan cannot affect our eternal destiny. If we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have had faith and trust in him, there's nothing that Satan can do to separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. So in other words, my fate is sealed. One of these days when God calls me home, or if Jesus himself returns first, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I will be with him in a place called heaven. I know that. There's nothing Satan can do to stop that. I was not saved by my works. I will not be lost by my works. I am saved by the grace of God, which is eternal. I believe that. So what does Satan do? Satan tries to do everything he can to attack us now on this earth. To try to hamper our relationships. To try to destroy our testimony. Satan was working in the book of Esther to steal, kill, and destroy the people of God. And you and I need to know that that same old enemy is still attacking us today. He's still coming against the people of God. And understand when I say the people of God, I'm talking about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the people of God now. God has grafted in the Gentiles into his kingdom. He has brought us together across Nations across ethnicities, across all types of barriers. He has brought us together as his people. And what does Satan want to do? He wants to try to destroy the church. That's the reason he will do everything he can to cause mischief, to cause disunity, to cause dissension. He will do everything he can to stop the work of the church. One, because he hates the church. And he's warring against God's people. But also let me give you this nugget of truth. And that is, I believe that Satan comes to destroy us or he comes to try to kill us. He tries to steal from us our livelihood, our testimony, our family. He tries to do all of that because it is intrinsic in his nature. He is evil. But he also does it to try to stop the kingdom of God from expanding. Don't miss that. I've pointed it out here before, but if you miss this part of the book of Esther, you've missed it. What is Satan really trying to do? I believe that he is trying to stop the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. That's what I think he was trying to do in the book of Esther. 
If he destroyed all of God's people, that means there would be no Messiah. And if there's no Messiah, there would be no gospel. And if there's no gospel, there's no salvation. And if there's no salvation, there's no eternal life. And there's no eternal life, there's no church, there's no hope for us. So what did Satan want to do? I think he's done this all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout history. If you watch, he will try to destroy the seed of the woman who has been prophesied to bruise his head. So over and over throughout history, over and over, God's enemy has come against God's people in order to stop the kingdom, in order to stop the expansion of the good news. But guess what? We have the New Testament. Read Matthew. Read Mark. Read Luke. Read John. It is the story of the Messiah. It is the story of the one named Jesus. Because even though Satan is powerful, don't miss it, he is powerful. He is not more powerful than the God who sits on the throne. He is not more powerful than the God you and I serve. And because our God is sovereign and our God is powerful, his plan and his purpose prevail. And Jesus came. Because yes, what God is doing is bringing personal victory, but he's going to bring corporate victory as well. And he's going to bring forth his son. Even though Satan would try to destroy him, God is going to bring forth his son. And nothing's going to affect that. Again, Galatians 4, 4 that I mentioned earlier in this series, Jesus will come in the fullness of time. Just at the right moment, God will send forth his son. Satan will do anything to stop stop the kingdom of God. From expanding. So you and I need to know that today. Hey, this is practical application for us. If we're God's people, then it means that we have an enemy, the same enemy that God has, Satan himself. And he will come to try to destroy our families. He will come to try to destroy our church. He'll do everything he can to steal, kill, and destroy. But the reason he ultimately does it is so that he can stop the kingdom of God from expanding. Oh, and he can do it too. I mean, I mean, he can meddle. Let me say that. He can meddle in all kinds of activities. He can, try to, he can try to come and grab that word from somebody as the word is being heard and it's being implanted. As Jesus says, he, it's like he can come and snatch that word away. And he can use all kinds of things to do it. In the life of the church... Somebody has said that Satan can cause more havoc in the church life and the church ministry through the sound system and the church van or bus than anything else. You know, those two things. Satan can interrupt the work of the church in those two things. I love my sound people. Right there. Those who are here in the blended service, those who are up in the gallery, I'm so grateful for them and the way they serve. But... Do you know how many times, I mean, through the year, I mean, this has been through the years. I'll get to that moment where we're going to give the invitation and it'll be something that'll start like squealing 
are doing. Uh, I know we're still having that issue of like being on a certain channel, a wavelength, that kind of stuff with our mics. I remember back in Blue Springs, we would we would be there and I would lead the music. I, uh, Brother David would get up and preach. And every now and then, back then, there was this 18-wheeler that would pass. And when he would pass, his conversation would come over the sound system. <laughs> You'd think I'm kidding. I remember one day I was sitting there toward the front and I heard this guy come on and Brother David had been preaching and he was trying to get up over that other guy's. I mean, so it was like a battle between the two and I could hear where this conversation was going and I just jumped up, ran to the back and I think I just hit the power button just the time when we needed to make sure it was hit because of what was about to come out of that guy's mouth. I could tell what was going to happen. That would have been a spiritual experience for us that day at Blue Springs Baptist Church. God, there's so many things Satan can use to disrupt things. I've often said that we need to add now in our churches like a cell phone, right? Or maybe some visual things of how it tries to just be at that moment. When I've gone to visit folks before, I remember a couple of times in particular when I was trying to make sure that I got to the gospel. And right when I got to the gospel, guess what happened? A little dog came running and jumped up my lap. Now, I can share the gospel over a dog, okay? But the little yappy dogs? Sometimes I think, okay, is this where the demons went? Did they go from the hogs into the little yappy dogs? No, they went into the cats. I know that. I understand. But you're serious. You, you, don't think, you don't think Satan will use those type of disruptions? Yes, I've seen it all. Satan will do everything he can. Look at the early church. What did Satan do? He empowered those who stood against the gospel to bring persecution against the church. Persecution over and over and over. Trying to squash it. Trying to stop the kingdom. But you got to love it. Because it said as they were persecuted and they were scattered, the gospel went forth. The kingdom went forth. And we're sitting here today because God used persecution to scatter those early disciples and those missionaries to the nations themselves. God has the power, but you and I, we need to do everything we can to resist the work of the devil. Come tonight, we'll talk more about that. And to guard our testimonies. Because, see, I believe he wants to destroy you and your family. I believe Satan wants to. But you know one of the reasons he wants to? He wants to mar your testimony so you will not be an effective witness of the gospel. He'd love to cause issues between you and your spouse so that you have those things going on and you cannot be the effective witness you should be before others. He would love to attack you with slander, attack you with all types of gossip and other things. He'd love to do that so that he can stop your testimony from going forth. As it should. 
Because what does he want to do now? He wants to prevent the kingdom of God from expanding, just like he did in the book of Esther. And whereas he was trying to stop, I think, the coming of Jesus, today he's trying to stop us from spreading the good news of Jesus. You and I, God's people, we have enemies. We have one enemy in particular, God's enemy, Satan, who has all types of evil troops and demonic hordes to come with him for battle. I want to give you a second truth as we see here. Since we are God's people, we do have an enemy, and we will face God's enemy. But second, since we are God's people, we will see God's victory. There is an enemy. Don't underestimate him. Make sure you put the full armor of God, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, on. But you don't forget this. Because we are God's people, we will see God's victory. There is a personal victory. There is a corporate victory you see here in this passage. Verse 15, where it talks about Mordecai. He comes, and as I said, he has these great royal robes on. And you look at him and you recognize that he has been vindicated. There is personal vindication. There is a personal victory there for him. He has gone from the man that was going to be impaled upon a 75-foot gallow to a man in pomp and circumstance, in the royal clothing. The scripture says in the beginning of chapter 8 that he actually takes over Haman's possessions and resources. How do you like that for irony and victory? There's a personal victory for Mordecai, but there's a corporate victory. You read again through chapter 8. You'll see Esther going before the king. Because even though Haman is dead, the death warrant still lives. What do I mean by that? Well, Haman is dead. He was the architect of the plan and the plot. But if you read through chapter 8, you will see that the edict, the decree that was issued by the king to destroy the Jews, it is still in existence. The Jews are still under a death warrant. And the day is approaching. So what does Esther do? Esther appeals to the king. And this irrevocable decree, because in the Persian Empire, if the king made a decree, it was irrevocable. Nobody, not even he really could undo it. But through God's wisdom and discernment, through Esther's intervention, what happens? There is another decree given that empowers the Jewish people to defend themselves legally, to fight back. In other words, they are not at the mercy of their neighbors. They themselves can defend who they are. Verses 9, verses nine through 14. If you read through that and then go back and look at the decree in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, somebody's pointed out 78% of the words are the same. Because the decree now has gone into effect. And this is what's awesome. Is that our God takes an irrevocable decree and he provides a way 
for the deliverance of his people. I don't know about you, but I want to say, wow, what a God. A God that can take something that seems to be unchangeable here on this earth, and he makes a way for his people. Because our God is in the business of rewriting the record. Our God is in the business of rewriting irrevocable decrees so that he can provide and protect his people. That's what you see in the scripture. And that's the God that we see all throughout, all throughout the Old Testament. One who could bring victory. In the New Testament, the one who could bring victory. When life looks hopeless, and don't miss it, it looked hopeless. The people had no hope outside of God. There was no chance for their survival. No chance. And yet God intervened with his victory and his hope. It's kind of like the cross itself, right? Think about the cross and what it demonstrates, what it shows us. This suffering, this terror, this punishment that is there communicated through the cross. Jesus had been beaten. He had been shamed He had been placed upon the cross to die. And yet, listen, and yet, God took the instrument of death and he made it into a vehicle of life. He took that which was meant to bring death and he used it to bring to us life. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 says it so clearly. In verse 12 or verse 13 it says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way. Get this. Having nailed it to The cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. You get that? The cross, again, the symbol of death. And Paul says it was there upon the cross where all hope seemed to be lost. It was there upon the cross. That God took all of the charges that were brought against us, every trespass, every sin, everything that we were so guilty of. He took it, he placed it upon the cross, he nailed it on the cross so that all of those charges were crucified with Jesus. And Jesus took those sins for us. And it said it was on the cross where Satan thought he had won. That it was on the cross that those principalities... That they were made a public spectacle of. They were publicly embarrassed. It wasn't the embarrassment of God's son. It was the embarrassment of God's enemy. And God triumphed that day. He triumphed that day. Because our God is all about bringing victory in the midst of defeat. Our God is one who can put Esther in the right place. To bring victory. He is the one that can overcome all type of decrees and edicts and kings and all of those things. 
And he is also the one who can overcome Satan, not just in Old Testament terms. He can overcome him even with the cross itself. And I didn't even get to Sunday morning. That was just the cross on Friday. But can you imagine how Jesus demonstrated his victory over death, hell, and the grave itself when he walked out? When he was living and breathing, and don't miss that, he is living and breathing still today. He is alive because he is the one who brings victory. He is the one that has the power to look at God's people and to do whatever it takes to bring them victory. How it will be consummated one day. The end is written. I think we sang that just a few moments ago. I've read the book of Revelation. I know how it ends. I remember my first pastorate. And you know... Back then, I knew everything. It's amazing how I get a little older, and it seems like I don't know quite as much. But I knew everything. I started out, man, I was wide open. I used to could really preach, too. And there was all kinds of... And I was so... You know what I did? I went in, I said, I said we're going to do a study of Revelation. I mean, I know it all. I'm premillennial dispensational. I mean, I got it. I got every word you could imagine that I can use. I've, I've been to school. I've been to college. <laughs> I started that study on Sunday night. Never did finish it. Leslie always says, Reggie, if you start a book on Revelation, uh, a study on Revelation, I'm packing. Because twice you've left when you started that. It's probably because I got in so much trouble when I was doing it. I don't know, but. I was up there one Sunday night, man, I, had, I thought I'd gone through all my notes. I had my charts. You know, everybody's got a chart. And I was going through all those things. Mr. Jack Smith came up to me afterwards. Mr. Jack was my chairman of the deacons. He was the guy that could bring peace in the midst of disturbance. Because at my first church, I had four deacons. Two of them hated each other. It didn't matter if one said something that he wanted to do. The other one would say something totally different. It was just the way it was. The third guy, he didn't know what he believed. So it didn't matter to him which the way we went. So I had one take this position, one take this position, the one in the middle. Mr. Jack, though, my chairman, he could always bring peace. When he spoke, he had authority. Oh, I didn't mention that his speech often was slurred because he'd been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And the disease was beginning to impact him. His muscle control, his speech. But he came to me that night. He was so respectful of me. He looked at me as that young pastor and he said, Brother Reggie, you know, I don't know all about Revelation. I hadn't got it all figured out. I don't know all about the things there. But all I know is this. There's victory in Jesus. I've never forgotten that. And how it humbled me that night. 
Because sometimes we can see all the different pieces and we miss the big picture. There's victory in Jesus. He is going to bring victory for his people. Isn't that what Revelation 19, 11 through 16 really says? Now I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. He who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on the white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. That is the victory. And for us as God's people, even though there is an enemy, there is victory through God. I'll say this very quickly as we close. That makes a lot of difference in the way we react toward him and the way we live each day. Because since we are God's people, we can also experience God's joy. We may have the enemy, but the victory brings us joy. Don't miss it. Verse 15 said, the city of Shushan or Susa, depending on your translation, rejoiced and was glad. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. It says that they rejoiced. I bet they did. You want to talk about a party? I mean, it would be like a Mississippi team winning something in Omaha. No, we've never done it. To go back. It is awesome. It is a party. Rejoicing. Because that which was meant to be death has turned out to be life. That which meant to destroy the kingdom, push back the kingdom, has actually added to the kingdom. The scripture says that people came to know God through this. Who would have believed it? When you start out in chapter 1 and you see this sordid description of a banquet and all of this kind of stuff, who would have ever imagined that that story would have told us that people came to the living God? But that is the God we serve. And that is the joy we should have in him. Contrast it with chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where it says they were weeping. They were in sackcloth. When they heard the initial decree, they knew that their, or they seemed to know that their destiny was sealed. Now they are rejoicing. Because what does Psalm 30, verse 5 tell us? Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We may weep for some time. We may battle against the enemy and see the difficulty that will come. But you don't forget that joy comes in the morning. That Saturday when the disciples, when the disciples were overwhelmed with the events of Friday and the events of Thursday night. That Saturday they must have been so low. Emotionally, spiritually, 
They must have wept until their turns, their tears turned into laughter on Sunday morning. You and I, we're on this side of the resurrection and the cross. We still battle difficulties. But it is time for joy. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Paul, as he's writing 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is all about the resurrection itself. But thanks be unto God who hath given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What joy. Folks, if you're a believer in Christ, you're God's people. Your sins are forgiven. Smile. Delight in him. Don, your sins are forgiven. Terry, your sins are forgiven. Susan, your sins are forgiven. Mike, your sins are forgiven. Ty, your sins. We ought to smile because our sins are forgiven. We delight in him. We rejoice in him. Why? Because our life is full. Our purpose has been defined. We have eternal life now and we have eternal life forever. We smile, we delight in him because he is coming back to consummate his victory and defeat every enemy that has stood against us in his kingdom. No more disease. No more debt. No more demonic activity. No more difficulty in our relationships. No more disasters. It is certainly... The place where we take joy because we know that through him there is victory. And as we studied last Wednesday night, as Nehemiah put it so well, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? you committed yourself to him? Can you say that you are part of God's people? If not, you come today in faith and trust. Let me, let some other ministers, let us help you as you pray to him and accept him as your Lord and Savior. Those of us in this place who are believers, and to be quite frank, we're disheartened or disappointed. We see the world, we see chaos, we see all the other things. For those of us in this place that are in that condition today, we need to be reminded of the victory. Maybe we just need to come and delight. Hey, maybe we just need to smile. Maybe we just need to rejoice in what he has done. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. And God, you want to work in our midst right now. God, you're speaking to us. And I pray that, Lord, you would work within Lord, this sanctuary, within the gathering there. God, that there would be those who would come, yes, to accept you. Lord, that today there would be those who come to just rejoice in your victory, to praise you. Maybe just about an altar and give absolute praise to who you are. God, we know the enemy's coming after us. 
We know he's targeting us. We know that he is walking among us like a roaring lion seeking those who he might devour. God, we are thankful that you give us faith and power, that you give us exactly what we need to stand for your kingdom. God, bless this moment of invitation. Help us respond. We pray in Jesus' name.